Before we read God's holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer now. As we come now to your holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired word, to read and meditate on the witness of your word, dear Lord, concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we ask that you would help us to rightly understand, to believe, and to be transformed. That we too might live in the power of the resurrection this day. Through Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll be reading from the gospel according to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we read through the resurrection accounts in the gospels, we might find differences in the accounts, which shows that each account takes on its its own flavor. Pastor Scott read the account of Luke's gospel, and you might have noticed the difference 
with the account from John's gospel and and perhaps this might concern us that the details do not match perfectly but we need to consider that if there were three or four of us witnessing an event together that each of us would share what we had seen and heard and experienced a little bit differently from our own perspectives In fact, if a crime had been committed and the police called in witnesses and each told the exact same story with the exact same details, the police might just wonder if the witness, the witnesses had conspired together to fabricate the story. The differences in the details are what demonstrate to us that the story is authentic and can be trusted. And now John is unique among the gospels. Not only because he's writing much later and is providing a more theological focus, but because he was one of the firsthand witnesses of the empty tomb. He was at Jesus, with Jesus at the foot of the cross, and he places himself here at the tomb on this Easter morning. He is the one referred to here as the other disciple. Now, this might be out of humility that he doesn't want to name himself, although you might wonder why, if this is the case, that he wants us to know that the other disciple was a faster runner than Peter. He repeats this little piece of information three times for us, telling us that he outran Peter and reached the tomb first in verse 4. Then in verse 6, he tells us that Peter came following him. And then again in verse 8, he tells us that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went into the tomb. And this might seem to us a very odd detail to include, almost comical, a a bit boastful, right? Did we need to know and be reminded several times in just a few verses that John was a faster runner than Peter? This, This sounds like some sort of childish competition. This is what kids do. Everything is a race. If you have kids or are around kids, you hear these phrases a lot. Ha, I beat you. I'll race you. Last one there is a rotten egg. Peter was the rotten egg. Is that what we need to know as John shares with us the most remarkable thing that's ever happened in human history? But that really isn't what John is doing. He's adding these details to remind us that he was there. This is a first-hand account, and as unlikely as it might sound, he might also actually be demonstrating his deference to Peter, a leader in the early church to whom he waited and allowed to enter the tomb ahead of him. He got there first, but he let Peter go ahead of him into the tomb. And by the way, it does make sense that John would have been the faster runner since John was, after all, a much younger man than Peter. This is one of those details, though, that gives a specific flavor to John's account and supports its historicity. And John was able to personally attest to what he and Peter saw there. They discovered, as Mary had, the stone had been rolled away. Jesus' body was no longer there. This wasn't what they were expecting, though, was it? It was clear that none of them expected Jesus to have risen from the dead. The dawn breaks that day to find them all in despair and mourning. And the first thought that they had when they saw the empty tomb wasn't Jesus has risen from the dead. It was 
someone has stolen his body. That was the only logical explanation to them. But going into the tomb, they found the, the clothes that Jesus' body had been wrapped in, evidence that no one has stolen the body. What grave robber would have taken the time to unwrap Jesus' body? This, this would have taken quite a bit of work, especially since John has told us in the previous chapter that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had prepared the body for burial with 75 pounds of spices wrapped together in the grave clothes. Not only this, they observed that the cloth which had been wrapped around Jesus' head had been neatly folded. Consider what that is communicating. When I was a little boy, my sisters and I came home from school one day to find our house broken into. The, the back door had been kicked in. But one of the first things that we saw upon entering the house was the thief had attempted to steal our television set and either had decided it was too heavy or had been interrupted in the act and fled. So it had been left in the middle of our living room floor. Drawers were left open, were disheveled. The house was a wreck. No one has ever come home to discover that their house has been broken into by a thief only to find their laundry folded, their bed made, their dishes done. That's ridiculous, right? That's, that's the point here. These pieces of evidence, the initial unbelief, the, the, the rolled away stone, the, the missing body, the empty tomb, the folded grave cloth, it's making a strong case for the bodily resurrection of Jesus who had been raised from the dead and not simply as Lazarus had who was called out of the tomb still wearing his grave claws still wrapped up no Jesus's grave claws had been folded and put away they would never be needed again but John doesn't spend excessive time with himself and Peter here, does he? He doesn't even name himself. Who is it, rather, that John devotes much more attention? It's Mary Magdalene, right? And John even recounts these events in a way as to draw attention to her. For instance, we're told in the other Gospels, we heard it from the Gospel of Luke, that it wasn't just Mary Magdalene who went to the tomb early that morning. There were other women as well. But John doesn't mention these other women. So one of those details that might initially disturb us. Does John's gospel contradict the others? But listen to what Mary tells the disciples when she comes to inform them that Jesus' body is missing. Verse 2, so she ran. There's a lot of running going on. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Did you hear that? We do not know where they have laid him. And John indicates to us that the other women were there, but John doesn't mention them. He wants our attention on Mary Magdalene. Why? Because he wants us to consider this woman who had been at the foot of the cross as Jesus hung dying on that Friday afternoon. She had witnessed his death. She had heard him cry out 
At the last, it is finished. He had heard Jesus commit his spirit into his father's hands as he breathed his last breath. And then she had followed Joseph and Nicodemus as they had taken Jesus' body from the cross and placed him in the tomb. And she was the first to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And then she was the one who had hurriedly gone and announced to the disciples that the stone had been rolled away and the body was missing. And she had returned to the tomb with Peter and John. But when they left a short time later and returned to their homes, John, having seen and believed, Mary remained there. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She couldn't bring herself to leave. Her distress here is palpable. She stood weeping because she wanted so badly for a proper burial for her beloved Jesus. And perhaps more than that, she just wanted to be where Jesus was, or at least where he had last been seen. She wanted to be close to him. All this is demonstrating to us that she clearly did not yet believe. Her grief indicates this, as did her continued search for Jesus' body. She was not looking for a man who had risen from the dead. She was looking for a dead body. But notice Mary's language. Jesus was dead, or so she believed, and she continued to call him Lord. Every time she opened her mouth, she spoke of her Lord. There's a deep love being demonstrated here. There is a heartfelt devotion that John wants us to see in Mary. Even in Jesus' death, Mary loved him and was devoted to him. Love made her linger longer at that grave. Love made her continue to look for him. Love made her willing even to do the impossible. To carry his body in all of those burial spices back to the tomb by herself. Something that had required two strong men on that previous Friday afternoon. This is what she says in verse 15. If you've taken his body, tell me where you've taken him. I'll come and take him away myself. Don't miss this, John is telling us. And it isn't that Mary is a central character in the story. She isn't. Jesus is. He is a central focus. Everything revolves around his resurrection from the tomb. But it's through Mary that we move for the first time from circumstantial evidence to direct evidence. And this is a remarkable thing. John is writing in a time when women were not particularly valued or trusted. They didn't count as witnesses in the court. It obviously made no difference to John, though. He and the other gospel writers unashamedly present the reality that Mary was the first witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus. She was the first to see him. She was the first to hear his voice. She was the first to touch his resurrected body. More evidence for us that this is an authentic and historical account of this event. And it's through Mary that we begin to understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Perhaps Mary's rewarded for her first, with this first experience of the resurrected Lord Jesus because of her deep devotion and love for Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus tells us, for they shall see God. And Mary was deeply devoted to Jesus, you see, because she knew what it was like to be in bondage to sin and darkness. Although Mary Magdalene has sometimes been mistakenly confused with a Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with 
perfume has wrongly sometimes been said to have, well, how to put this with little ears listening, provided services that were unbecoming. This is not what scripture tells us of Mary. The gospels tell us that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. In fact, when Mark's gospel recounts the resurrection, this is what he says. He, Jesus, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Mark is sure to put these things together for us. Mary had a very real knowledge about Jesus' power to bring liberty and new life. Before encountering Jesus, she had been possessed by evil, oppressed by demons. She had been chained by the powers of darkness, unable to break free on her own accord. And the same is true for all who are dead in their sins. It's true of us who were all once slaves to Satan with no power to break free from the sins that bound us. But Mary had been set free by Jesus. And the deliverance she had experienced in Jesus had caused her to be a dedicated follower of Jesus. The other thing we know about Mary is from Luke's gospel, which tells us that she is among several women who provided for Jesus and his disciples out of their own means. In most cases, women during that time were financially dependent on the men in their lives, their fathers, their husbands. But it wasn't unheard of for some women to be independently wealthy. We see this of Lydia in Acts. It was also apparently the case for Mary Magdalene. She was out of her own resources, financially supporting Jesus and his 12 disciples. She was devoted to him. And her deep devotion had taken her to the foot of the cross on that Friday. And then to the tomb to mourn his death with great despair. And so the disciples, Peter and John, leave and she stoops back into the tomb. She sees two angels sitting in the tomb. Woman, why are you weeping? They asked her. But she would not be consoled. This is all we can do in the face of death if we have no hope. If we have no understanding of the victory of Jesus over the grave, we have nothing else but grief and despair at the tomb. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they laid him. Think about how remarkable it is that she sees these angels, these messengers of God, and is not shaken from her sadness. Sad indeed is not only the one who faces death without hope, but also the one who feels not the presence of the Lord. But he wasn't truly gone, was he? Perhaps sensing that someone was behind her, she turned from the tomb and found a man standing there. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? What a poignant question that is. Well, she was seeking Jesus. She would not rest until she found him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek and you will find. Words that echoed back to God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. There was nothing more that Mary wanted than to see her Lord. And we're challenged here by John's gospel to consider it, to, to consider who is it that we are seeking. 
That's a question posed for each of us this day. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking to find the one who will satisfy you in a way no one or nothing else can? Are you seeking a risen Lord? Or are you looking for someone or something else? And if we are seeking Jesus, do we have a big enough view of him? It could be that we're seeking dead things as Mary was, and these things will never satisfy. They will never bring the joy and peace that we're truly looking for. But Mary was seeking Jesus and her deep love and devotion to him, and God honored that, even though she was looking for him wrongly. John tells us here that Mary, supposing this man to be a gardener, responded to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Isn't it interesting that Mary initially sees Jesus as a gardener? Why is that? Why is that? Well, because who else would be among the tombs this early? Or because Jesus, the new and better Adam appeared as the first man was before the fall, before sin entered the world and corrupted everything, before death and decay caused all of this sadness and despair. The first man was a gardener. The new man is as Adam was, but without sin, the true human, perfectly righteous. Through Adam came death. Through Jesus comes life. Mary still cannot see who this man is, though. She's blinded by her grief. She's blinded by her unbelief until Jesus speaks that one sweet word. Mary. Mary did not have the faith to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he spoke her name. Mary. And then immediately she recognized the voice of the one who had commanded the demons to depart from her and torment her no more. The voice of the one who had called her out of darkness and now once again calls her out of the darkness of despair, Mary. It was the voice of the one who had spoken peace in the storm and the sea had obeyed. This voice now spoke peace and calm to her. It was Jesus, her Lord, the risen Lord. Mary didn't have to look for Jesus very long. In fact, she didn't find Jesus at all. He found her in the darkness. And we are reminded here in a very vivid way what Jesus had told his disciples my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We are drawn to these words spoken by Jesus earlier in John's gospel. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Dearly beloved, do you know the voice of the Good Shepherd? 
the one who has laid down his life willingly, the one who joyfully gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for my sin and yours, and who, having accomplished the work given to him by his father, has taken it up again. Do you know his voice? Has he called your name? In a moment of deep despair and brokenness, in a, in a moment of grief and pain, in a moment of helplessness and confusion in your darkness, in your wandering, have, have you heard him beckon you to turn to him? Come and find rest. Come and find peace. Come and find comfort. Come and find what you truly seek. Life. Abundant life. And Mary's reaction is exactly what any one of us who love the Lord, who longed to see him would have done. She turned to him and cried, Rabbi, my teacher, my master, the one whom I follow. And she ran to him and flung her arms around him. It's a reaction of one who rejoices in the resurrection. It's the reaction of all who long to shout on Easter morning, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. If she loved him when she believed him to be dead, then consider the love she has for him now that she's discovered him to be alive once more. But Jesus' response to Mary might seem a bit odd to us. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is not a cold rebuke, though. Rather, it is the declaration of the resurrected Lord of the promise of eternal life in God's presence that he had died to secure for her. It's here that we not only see the evidence of the resurrection, we begin to understand the significance of the resurrection. Jesus' death was meant to bring about our reconciliation with God. Jesus, the sinless one, had been forsaken by the Father in order that we might be accepted by the Father. He took the penalty of our sins, the wrath of God, that we might not be condemned but declared righteous. But it moves beyond the legal standing before God. Jesus was brought low that we might be raised up and exalted with him as sons of God to dwell with him in everlasting light and life. Jesus' work of salvation had been done but he had not re yet reached his goal to return to the father and it wasn't just simply to resume his joyful fellowship with the father to be once more enthroned in glory in worship to rule over all things he goes there for us he goes there to intercede for us. He goes there to send us his spirit in order that he might fulfill his promise to us to be with us always. He goes there to prepare a place for all those who love him and to believe on him. And this is what he told the disciples on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus defeated death for us that we might have eternal life and have it in God's presence as his beloved children. This is a glorious truth communicated here. John's gospel begins by telling us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And now listen to Jesus' words. Go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. First of all, what a, what a glorious thing to be sent by Jesus to deliver this amazing news. What a, what a privilege Mary bears. But did you hear what he is saying to her? His death and resurrection have opened for us a new relationship with God. Don't miss this. By faith in his saving death on a cross and his resurrection from, from the grave, Jesus has become our brother. This is what he calls the disciples, my brothers. And she has de declared to them that his father is their father. That his God is their God. By Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been given the right to become children of God. The relationship between Jesus the Son and his Father will forever be unique. But in a new sense, this relationship, this wonderful communion with its perfect harmony and everlasting holy love has been open to all those who place faith in Jesus Christ. So with his resurrection from the grave, a new hope burst forth that we will have life and that we will have this life in the sweetness of that communion. Do you want that, brothers and sisters? Do you want to be fully alive and know the sweetness of the relationship shared between the Son and the Father? To know, to experience perfect love, love that casts out all fear? The resurrection and ascension open for us this reality. So in this garden that housed the tomb of Jesus, this garden that was a place of death, new life burst forth. It was in a garden which a woman had first eaten that deadly fruit, but now it would be from the mouth of a woman that it is declared that death has been defeated. The curse of sin had been broken. Death has been swallowed up by death. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is returning to his Father. And just as he has been raised, so too will those who love him and place faith in him. Just as he dwells in eternal communion with his Father, so too will all those who love him and believe on him. He has gone ahead of us into the grave to defeat death. And he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us in his father's house. And he will come again and bring us to himself that where he is, we may be also. So on this morning that we remember the resurrection, whom, whom do you seek? Do you seek the risen Lord? Have you heard his voice call your name, speak to you of the privilege of being a child of God? Have you heard him assure you of his promise of eternal life in the presence of God where there will be no more death, no more sadness, no more sin, only life and love and righteousness and joy and peace? Have you heard that voice? If not, then I want to urge you to seek him this day. Pray that he would free you from bondage to sin and death and give you faith to believe that you might Know for yourself the power and joy of the resurrection. Let us pray. Most gracious and glorious God, this day we proclaim that death cannot keep his prey. 
that Jesus Christ tore the bars away. We rejoice in the truth that up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Lord, help us to believe in this saving truth and to live in the power of his resurrection for it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.